Well, good evening. Good to see somebody came back. I was a little worried after last night. So it's, it's always good. Um, before I get started, I would just like to say again how grateful I am for this opportunity. Thank you so much for, for letting me be here. Thank you for letting me share Matt and the deacons and just everybody here at, at Doolin's Grove. I really appreciate it and do count it an honor and a privilege to, to be here. So thank you so much. If you have your Bibles, we're going to return to the book of 1 John. Tonight we're going to be in the third chapter. So we're going to look at uh, chapter 3, and we're going to look at the first three verses of that chapter. So if you have your Bibles and you are able, I'd like to invite you to please stand as we read from the Word of God. Beginning in verse 1. It says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Let's pray. Father, again, we just thank You for Your Word. We thank you that you have preserved it for us and that you have revealed yourself to us through it. Father, I would just pray now that you would empty us of ourselves. Empty us of anything that would hinder us from hearing your word clearly. And that you would just speak through your word to us tonight. Father, I pray that you would direct my words. That you would correct them if necessary. We would just pray that all that is said and all that is done brings you glory. We would pray that all that is said and all that is done magnifies Jesus. And we would ask, Father, that tonight your gospel might be adorned with praise. Teach us tonight, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. Teach us what we have in Jesus. For in his name we pray. Amen. Theologian A.W. Pink wrote this. He said, The great mistake made by most of the Lord's people is in hoping to discover in themselves that which is to be found in Christ alone. Tonight, as we think about revival, as you think about revival in your church, I would encourage you not to look in yourselves for that revival because you will not find it there. We cannot revive ourselves. Only God can revive us. So as we think about that, it is important that we always remember the source of our strength. We remember the source of our life. And that is Jesus. Last night I talked about how our works flow out of our love for God. Because we understand how much He loved us. When we understand what He has done for us in Christ and what He is doing for us in Christ. Tonight the theme will be very similar. It will be an idea that is very much like what I spoke on last night. I'd like to read a quote from a book. This is by, it was written by Tullian Tavigian. It's an excellent book. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And he writes this. It's day by day, what God wants us to experience practically 
only happens as we come to a deeper understanding of what we are positionally. A deeper understanding of what's already ours in Christ. The hard work of Christian growth, therefore, is to think less of ourselves and our performance and more of Jesus and His performance for us. Ironically, when we focus mostly on our need to get better, we actually get worse. We become neurotic and self-absorbed. Preoccupation with our effort instead of with God's effort for us makes us increasingly self-centered and morbidly introspective. Again, think of it this way. Sanctification is the daily hard work of going back to the reality of our justification. It's going back to the certainty of our objectively secured pardon in Christ and hitting the refresh button a thousand times a day. Or as Martin Luther so aptly put it in his lectures on Romans, to progress is to always begin again. Spiritual progress, in other words, requires a daily going backwards. So tonight, I want us to go backwards again. And I want us to see that holiness in our lives, purity in our lives, flows from who we are and what we have in Jesus. So as we look at these verses, I want us to see three things from these verses tonight. I want us to see our privilege, our promise, and our purity. So I'm going to begin with our privilege. Now, my mind works in strange and mysterious ways sometimes. And when I, when I read this and when I was preparing for this, this first verse made a movie come to my mind. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the movie The Princess Bride, but it's a, it's a very good movie. I enjoy it. It's, it's a lot of fun. And if you've seen the movie, you know that at the beginning of the movie that Princess Buttercup is kidnapped by these three desperate kind of characters. And there's this one guy who's like the mastermind. He's the, he's the thinker. He, he thought out the big plot. Well, as his plot starts to unfold and his plan starts to come together, some kinks are thrown into it. And the hero of the story is coming to rescue Princess Buttercup. And every, every obstacle that the bad guys put in his path, he overcomes. And if you remember, Vincini is his name, the mastermind. He utters this phrase over and over again. Every time Wesley thwarts, thwarts him, he, he goes, Inconceivable! If you remember the movie, and that's what he says over and over again. And when I read this, I, I, in my mind's eye, I saw the Apostle John as Vincini, that little guy, going, Inconceivable! Because that's what he says here. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. I want to talk about first about our privilege, about what we are. And the first thing that we are is that we are loved. And we are loved with an inconceivable love. We are loved with a foreign love. And that's really what the word speaks to here. It is a love that God shows us that is foreign to the human race. It is not naturally found in humanity. His love for us is unique. In fact, the verse could be translated, Behold what peculiar, out-of-this-world kind of love the Father has bestowed on us. It's an amazing thing that God loves us. And He loves us in this spectacular way. What kind of the love the Father has given to us? I like the NIV translation of that verse a little bit better. Because the NIV doesn't say what the, the love the Father has given to us. It says the love the Father has lavished on us. 
And I like that. That's a great thing that God lavishes this inconceivable for and out of this world love on us. That's what he gives us, this really amazing thing. And it speaks of our restored relationship with him. And it should be a reminder to us that we don't restore our relationship with God by climbing up to him. Our relationship with God is restored by his coming down to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Grace is descending. It is a one-way love. And that is what God has shown us in Jesus. This inconceivable, amazing, peculiar love. And what's so peculiar about it? John tells us. He says, What kind of love has the Father given to us that we should be called the children of God? Inconceivable. We who are God's enemies, we who Ephesians refer to as children of wrath, we who Colossians call us alienated and enemies in our mind by our wicked works. God has so loved us so dearly, so inconceivably, that while we were His enemies, He loved us. Christ died for us. And He has taken those who were His adversaries, those who hated Him, and made them into His children. It is truly an inconceivable love. And this is where the whole plan of salvation begins, is God's amazing, inconceivable love for us. Now, some people will say, well, big deal. We're all God's children, right? You know, the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. It's a nice sentiment, but it's just not true. It's just not biblical. There's no such thing. Only those who are in Christ are God's children. Our sonship, our daughtership, our position as children is inextricably tied to the sonship of Jesus Christ. It is because Jesus is God's only Son, and we are identified with Him and in Him, that we are God's children. We are adopted by this union, this mystical union, this thing that happens somehow where we identify with Christ and, and, and come to dwell with Him and, and abide with Him and He in us. And... It is all based on faith. It is all based not on what we do, but on what He has done and our trust in what Jesus has done. So we see this inconceivable, this wonderful, inconceivable, condescending love of our Father. That He takes us, who are by nature heirs of sin and guilt, those who are deserving of the curse of God, those who are children of corruption, children of disobedience and ingratitude, Inconceivably, He loves us to the point that we become His children. Inconceivable. But we're not merely His children. Let's read on. In verse 1, it continue, He continues, He says, The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. We are not only children, we are strangers. Not to God, but to the world. We've been changed. This speaks to our transformation. This, again, speaks to our identity with Christ. Now, suddenly, we who are a part of the world, we who are children of the world, we were advocates of the world. If you go back to chapter 2, 
those people who love the world and the things of the world. That's who we were. But now we're something different. We're somebody different. The world doesn't know us anymore. And the reason it doesn't know us is because it didn't know Him. And we are in Him. We are now in Christ. And so we are strangers to this world. Not on the outside, of course. We still live here. We're still in this world. But within who we are as people on the inside, we have been changed and we have been transformed. And because we have been changed and because we have been transformed, our behavior is different, our minds are different, our values are different. And people in the system of the world looks at us and they go, What? We don't get it. We don't understand. The reason they don't get it, the reason they don't understand is because they're blind. They can't see. Just like we were before we were adopted into the family of God. Just before God loved us so inconceivably and so graciously that he brought us into his family. And because of that, we, because we live in a world that we're strangers in, this world where we are pilgrims, sojourners, we're just passing through. Because of that, people in the world and the world and the system, it looks at us and it doesn't know what to do with us. When we're really following Christ, and it, and it just, they don't know, and they're very confused. And so it comes out in different ways. Sometimes they mock us. Sometimes they ridicule us. You know, you stupid Christians, how could you believe that? How could you believe that this guy died on a cross, and that's going to give you eternal life? What kind of foolishness is that? You Christians who believe that that you know that you're supposed to do stuff that the bible says and refrain from doing stuff that it says we shouldn't do it's craziness you guys are fools you're missing out on life and sometimes of course it gets worse it moves from mocking and ridicule to persecution and rejection but they are rejecting us not because of us they're rejecting us because of jesus Because we are in Him and they rejected Him. They did not know Him, so they do not know us. See, we're strangers here. Just passing through. Our perspective is suddenly different when we are loved so greatly. And we are in the family of God. We don't see this world as all there is anymore. We see this world and this life in light of eternity. And we have hope. In fact, we see this life in the light of our promise, which is the second thing John shows us here. Our promise in verse 2. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is You see, our privilege speaks to what we are now. Our promise speaks to what we shall be when Jesus returns. And that's how Paul begins. He says, when he appears, we will know him. When he appears, we will receive our reward. We get it when Jesus returns. That's... When we get the blessing, that's when we get the reward. That's when we get our new life. We are His sons right now. The world doesn't like it. They look at us and they think, bunch of weirdos, bunch of crazies. 
But we see it differently. We understand we live this life in hope. And as Advent Christians, this is our hope, right? This is our hope. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our, that's our bread and butter as Advent Christians, right? That's where we live and move and breathe. We're looking for Jesus to come back. And John's saying that is his promise. He will come back. And when he does, certain things are going to happen. It's really a threefold promise. The first promise is Jesus is going to come back. When he appears, he's going to come back. But there's a second part to that promise. He says that when he appears, we shall be like him. Inconceivable. I mean, really, we will be like Jesus. This is it. It's what theologians refer to as our glorification. When we, the consummation of all that Christ has done, the perfecting of us, the, the regeneration, the renewal of all that we are, takes place at this time. We are transformed and related to the full restoration of who God intended us to be. The full restoration of God's image in the human creation. We are made to be like Jesus. My little boy is four. I mentioned that last night. And if you took a picture of him right now and took a picture of me when I was four, you would not be able to tell the difference in the pictures. We are hoping he grows out of that. (laughs) But he unfortunately acts like me as well. So we're hoping he grows out of that. But you all know it. Kids look and act like their parents, don't they? You know, you can't deny lies, okay? He belongs to you. You know, there's no getting around it. And so you look at that, and that's how we're supposed to be spiritually. We're supposed to look like our father. We're supposed to look like our brother. Not outwardly, of course, and certainly not in the, in the sense that we are divine, as they are divine. But there will be certain things where we will be like Jesus. We will be like him physically. Imagine never, ever having to go back to the cardiologist. Imagine never having to go back for your six-month cancer checkup. Imagine never having to go to the orthopedist to have your knee replaced or your hip replaced. Imagine a place where doctors and nurses are not needed. We will be like Jesus. We will be perfect physically. And I think that's probably something many of us can hardly wait for. But it's not just that. We will be perfect emotionally as well. Think about this. And this is, this is where it gets completely inconceivable to me. Imagine what this will be like if you can. We will never again have a greedy thought. We will never again have a lustful thought. We will never again have a selfish thought. We will never again have a hateful thought. We will never again be afraid. We will never again worry. We will be emotionally perfect, just like Jesus. 
Ultimately, at the end of the day, we will be spiritually like Him in the sense that there will be no sin, no impurity in us at all. And that truly is something that is inconceivable. There are some smart people in this room tonight, but none of you, none of us, are smart enough to conceive perfection. And yet that is what we will be, because we shall be like Him. So He will appear, and we shall be like Him. But I think the third part of this promise might be the best part of this promise. And as we shall see Him as He is. Think about it. We will stand back face to face in full glory. See Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and God the Father, and all His holy majesty and all His glory, something that if we were to see it now would destroy us, we will be able to gaze on that forever and ever. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. One day, Jesus will no longer be veiled. One day, the majesty, the glory of God will no longer be veiled. And we will see Him and we will behold that glory. We will behold that majesty. We will behold that beauty. But it speaks to another thing. We will see Him as He is. We will see Jesus face to face. There will no longer be any impediments between us and our Savior. There will no longer be any impediments between us and our God. We will see Him without sin as an obstacle. We will be in full, perfect, eternal fellowship with Him. And that is inconceivable. We will see Him as He is Because we will be like Him. So we have this great privilege that God has given us. He has loved us. He has made us His children. And He has transformed us. And we have this amazing promise about what we shall be. That Jesus will return. That we will be like Him. And we shall see Him as He is. But John doesn't stop there. He, he says that this, this notion, this idea, this, our privilege and our promise, that there will be practical application, practical evidence in our life today. And that will be, the result of that will be our purity. Notice what he says in verse 3. And he says, Everyone who thus hopes in himself purifies himself as he is pure. The conviction that we're God's children, the promise that we have in Christ, will show itself in the practical evidence of pure and holy lives. Because we have this promise, because we have this great privilege, it will manifest itself that we will live as holy people in an unholy world. Now, the idea here, I want to be clear, and this is very important. John is not saying that we purify ourselves. He's not saying that at all. Saying that Jesus purifies us. That Jesus cleanses us. That Jesus makes us holy. In fact, that is why Jesus came. You know, I don't know if you guys ever sing. I call it the Battle Hymn of the Republic. It's something different in the, um, in the hymnal. But 
you know, my favorite line in that is, is, as he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free. And that's why Jesus died, to make us holy. And so that's what we need to be pursuing. And letting Jesus work that out in our lives, however he does that, cooperating with that work that he does in our lives, the work of the Holy Spirit to purify us, to make us holy, to make us in our image. And it it indicates that this is a continuous process that will never be complete in this life. But it is a process that is a wonderful gift. This idea of holiness, it simply means to be set apart. It means to be set apart from one thing, to be set apart to another. In our case, holiness is to be set apart from the world, to be set apart from sin, and to be set apart to God. That's what we're called to do, and that's who we're called to be. People who are set apart to Him. And we are called to be holy, we are called to be pure, we are called to be set apart because of our privilege, because of who we are in Christ. We are God's children, and we should resemble Him. And He is holy, and He is pure. So we should be holy, and we should be pure. This pursuit of purity, this pursuit of holiness, should be our natural inclination as Christians. Certainly not as non-Christians. But when we understand what we have and who we are in Christ... It begins to change us. We are called to be pure. We are called to be holy because of our promise. Because of what we have in Christ. We pursue purity because we know that purity is where we're headed. Okay, that's going to be the end of it. At the end of the day, we're not ivory soap. When Jesus comes back, it's not going to be 99.44, pure. When Jesus comes back, it's going to be 100% pure, perfect, righteous, holy in front of Him. And so now in our lives, God begins to already, as we come to Christ, move us in that direction. Slowly but surely, He, He works in this process of sanctifying us and making us holy and making us more like Christ. Don't misunderstand though, this is not about an outward conformity to the law. This is not nearly so much as about what we do. It's about who we are. See, the thing is, what we do flows out of who we are, not the other way around. What we do doesn't determine who we are. Who we are determines what we do. So God is changing us by the Holy Spirit, the work of Christ in our hearts, He changes us. He transforms us. He cleanses us. He purifies us and makes us holy. That should be the desire of our hearts. You know, it's a question we all need to ask ourselves. What is the desire of your heart? Is the desire of your heart to be holy as He is holy? To be pure as He is pure? Because that is what we're called to. To be holy as He is holy. And Jesus equips us to do that. He doesn't say, Matt, go be holy. He says, Matt, I'm going to make you holy. Ron, I'm going to make you holy. I'm going to give you the tools and the empowerment to do that. Now, the thing about this, this process, of course, is that 
we do play some part in it. We do have to cooperate in this process. God's not going to force holiness on us. But at the end of the day, what He commands, what He desires, He equips us for. He equips us for purity because that is what He wants us to be, pure and holy like Jesus. So we've talked about our privilege and we've talked about our promise and we've talked about our purity tonight. In closing, I'd like to read um, an excerpt from a book. The, book, the, the title of the book is Columbine by Dave Cullen. And it is a book about the, the shootings in 1999 at, at Columbine High School. So I just want to read um, to kind of set this passage up. The, um, the parents of the students have been called to the school. And um, many of the parents are awaiting word on the fate of their children. So this is where what has happened here. It says that Lee Wood, even the resilient families were faltering. Nothing had changed. No buses, no word for hours on end. District Attorney Dave Thomas tried to comfort the families. He knew which ones would need it. He had 13 names in his breast pocket. Ten students had been identified in the library and two more outside based on their clothing and appearance. One teacher lay in in science room three, all deceased. It was a solid list, but not definitive. Thomas kept it to himself. He told the parents not to worry. It goes on, and then it says this. It says, Most of the evangelicals reacted differently than the other parents. The press had been cleared from the area, but Lynn Duff was assisting the families as a Red Cross volunteer. A liberal Jew from San Francisco, she was taken aback by what she saw. The way that those families reacted was markedly different, she said. It was like 180 degrees from where everybody else was. They were singing, they were praying, they were comforting the other parents, especially the parents of Isaiah Schultz, the only African-American killed. They were thinking a lot about the other parents, the other families, and responding to a lot to other people's needs. They were definitely in pain, and you could see the pain in their eyes. But they were confident of where their kids were. They were at peace with it. It was like they were a living example of their faith. I read something like that, and I wonder what it was that allowed those parents to act in such a peculiar way. I believe at least was in part because they understood the great privilege they had as God's children. They understood the great love that their father had for them. And while they didn't understand it, they trusted in his perfect love that he had. I believe that they understood the great promise that they, that they had. The great promise. And, and even in the midst of this exceedingly tragic and difficult and painful time, that they saw the promise and they saw everything that was happening to them. They saw what was happening to their children in light of that promise, in light of eternity. And I believe because of their privilege and their, prom- and their promise, they exhibited a peculiar behavior, a pure and holy behavior that the world simply could not understand. God has given us a great privilege. He has surprised us with an inconceivable love 
by making we who were his enemies his children. And he has made us one with him. God has given us a great promise. Jesus will return. And when he does, we shall be like him and we shall see him as he is. And we are to be a people marked by purity, a people marked by holiness. We are driven to purity because of our privilege. We are driven to purity because of our promise. So my encouragement to you tonight as you move forward, as you think about revival in this church and in your own lives, is to take joy in your great privilege, rest in your great promise, and allow Jesus to purify you in His likeness. Don't try to discover in yourself that which can only be found in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this great, inconceivable love that you have shown to us. We thank you for the amazing gift of Jesus. We thank you, Father, that you have called us who were far from you to be your children. And you've loved us so dearly. We praise you and thank you, Father, for the promise of Jesus' most certain return. And then when he does return... All things will be made new. All things will be redeemed. And we shall be like Him and we shall see Him as He is. So Father, in the meantime, as You work in our lives, help us to cooperate with that work. Move in us, work in us to purify us, to make us holy, to make us like Jesus, that we might be a people who are pleasing to You, honoring to You, and like You. Now unto you that is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of your glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.